Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Social World Podcast. I'm David Niven, and I'm very pleased to have your company today. I have a very special guest here with me, somebody I've known for over 20 years, who uh, completely mirrors all my ideals and values in the world and has been a tireless campaigner for the rights of vulnerable people around the world. Christopher Lamb is a retired Australian diplomat who's worked for countless in countless places for countless communities and is an inspired person as far as I'm concerned and want, I want to hear his story. Christopher, are you there? Yes, David, and it's a very great pleasure to be with you. Good. Well, now look, we'll get into your, your history in a while. You've, you've worked all over the place with the Department of Foreign Affairs and in Australia. You, you've been a, uh, the Australian ambassador to various countries. You've been the Australian permanent mission to the United Nations, legal advisor and ambassador to, to Myanmar, Yugoslavia, Romania, Macedonia. But also, since I, when I met you, you had just really begun working as the chief diplomat with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Geneva. Now, all the time, though, you were uh, practicing humanitarian diplomacy, and you still today teach it at the University of Melbourne. So right back to the beginning again, what drew you to that career? David, first I should say I don't teach humanitarian diplomacy at the University of Melbourne on a full-time basis. I do occasional lectures on that. Well, but my, full, my fuller-time job is with an organization which is based in Geneva called the Diplo Foundation, uh -huh. Diplo as in diplomacy. And that is something which I started at the end of my time at the Red Cross, and I can come to that later on. Right. But I got started yeah. uh, at yeah. university through a series of, uh, of chance opportunities. And these, the secret of anything, and in particular diplomacy, I think, is to be able to connect dots and find opportunities and see what you can do with them. And my uh, career, which has been, as you said, all over the world and all over the place, is something which started before it began, if I can put it that way. Because at university, like a lot of other students in those days, and this is in the, hell, I have to think about when the timing was for this. This is in the, in the mid-60s. At that time, there we all were at university, uh, we were all were there because it was time to be at university. There wasn't a great concern for people at that time about what they would do later. It was assumed that they would go and work in daddy's firm or something, or in some opportunity that was coming off a family tree or a group of friends. But for me, it didn't work out quite like that. I, I went to the university, and that was in Canberra. I studied law, and uh, in the course of that study, in my second year at the university, I had a good time, and I failed some units at that time. So there I was, uh, just a couple of units behind, and I came to what should have been my first year out there in the, in the streets, earning money, and I still had some units to go. And at that time, by one of those miracle opportunities, which is the beginning of connecting dots, I saw that the government of the day had decided to take international law away from the Attorney General's Department, the Ministry of Justice, where it was at that time, and to put it into the Foreign Ministry. The Foreign Ministry didn't have enough people to service this activity. And there I was uh, doing two units and with a lot of time to spare. And through connections with people who I knew, I was able to step into the Foreign Ministry as a temporary employee to pick up slack. 
And they said to me during that year that they liked me, would I like to stay? And I did, and that's how the career started. So it's just had that I been so through many the, people serendipity. Well, and had I gone through the normal application process, because I had failed a couple of units, I would have had no chance of getting in. Oh, well, well. But I did. Mm. And one of the things that taught me, and, we, and I've used this ever since in my, in my thinking about careers and life, is that you also have to be good at the university of the street. It's not enough just to have a fancy degree and uh, things on the wall that show up, uh, what you've done. You've got to have actually done something beyond the wall in the street. And I, I've worked that way ever since. And that has led me to see more clearly than I'm sure I would have otherwise uh, what it is that people need. You understand something about the needs of people, and that has been the base of my work and certainly was a strong base for what I did later in the Red Cross. Right. So, you, I mean, you obviously, did you know early on, um, you know, as a youngster or whatever, um, in terms of like how you interacted with other people, that you were a natural people person? Or was it something that just came to you when you actually realized what your particular career was going to be? I don't think I ever considered myself to be anything in particular, and not necessarily a people person either. People identify that in me, but I don't look at myself. Uh, in the mirror and say, there you are, that's a people person, mm. that's what they look like. I've never been like that. I just try to behave as naturally as I can in any circumstance, and that gives you a, an easy connection to other people who are being natural. It also helps you see those people who are not being natural and who are lying or doing something that suits a different purpose. Well, I know that you are a natural in that respect because essentially your career um, shouts that out because essentially you wouldn't have been selected or invited to do any of the things you did if you weren't actually considered to be good at it. But I know deep down too from talking with you that you have got a particular passion for the representation and support of vulnerable people and communities. Was that something that you recognized from the beginning or was that more of a cumulative thing? No, I, I think that came very early, but I didn't think it very strange because at that time, uh, you're too young to know these things, David, so I have to put some things into a context. Thank you. Thank you. You follow. Uh, I was doing my work in the foreign ministry and I found myself being, and this was from day one in my first posting overseas, which was in the embassy in Vienna, I found myself thrown into a situation, into a pool at the deep end. And in that case, it was in 1969. I was 24 years old. I arrived in the embassy. The ambassador at the time was a lovely man, but uh, a lovely man in an almost uh, classic sense. He, he, he was the classic diplomat. He was the kind of person who thought you had to wear morning suit, evening clothes, all those things at all the right times and get that kind of decorum settled down. Uh, and he said to me, there's a meeting on this afternoon, this is on my first day, uh, at the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is located in Vienna. And I don't understand this meeting. We've got this piece of paper. I don't know what it's about. It's on this afternoon. Can you go down to it and see what it is? And I, he gave me the piece of paper, and this is printed very strongly into my memory. It was an information circular put out by the Atomic Energy Agency, number 66 and it was called INFCIRC 66. I looked at this document, and I was to be down there at 3 o'clock for the meeting, and it was about setting up the first plan for 
for putting in place um, monitoring of nuclear facilities to make sure that they were operating in accordance with the non-proliferation treaty, the nuclear mm -hmm. non-proliferation mm -hmm. treaty. Australia is one of the world's largest exporters of uranium, and I knew that at the time. And so I found myself down at this meeting, age 24, with nothing more than Infocirc 66 in my hands, and I then had to work out what Australia thought about this plan for a safeguards arrangement. And that went on to become the beginning of the safeguards regime that the world still lives under now at nuclear reactors. And I had to work that out. And that was, of course, at a time long before the internet, long before immediate communication with your capital. Uh, it was been very difficult to get any kind of sensible briefing from the ministry in Canberra. And I had to work out, uh, of course, talking to the ambassador, but he didn't understand these things at all. Uh, in, in fact, even less than I did. And we had to work out what we wanted Australia to do at that meeting. And I ended up deciding that Australia should actively support the beginning of the safeguards regime. Now, that won't have made any difference to the final results because they were all worked out. But it did give me an, an understanding of, of the way I had to work. And that was to think about what I thought myself would be best for Australia and its population. And it was quite interesting. And that, that care for the population is something that stayed with me. And mm. it's one of the reasons why I was very happy much later to go and work for the Red Cross. Okay. So there you were in Vienna, 24 years old. Um, and you were given something that essentially was enormously important um, that shaped quite a lot of your thinking from then on. But where did you go from there? Because I, we, we, I'd like you, we had so many places, so many things to talk about, but you actually went to... Was the UN in New York prior to becoming ambassador to different countries? No, I went from, well, again, these things uh, happened by all sorts of mischance. There I was in Vienna, and I was enjoying the work I was doing. I thought it was important and relevant and all those things. And the ambassador got a phone call at the, at the embassy, and I had to go down to his office. This phone call was from people in Canberra who said that they had a sudden vacancy uh, in the position of the number two officer in our embassy in Rangoon, as it was called then, and they would like me to go. Just about two weeks before that, they had asked me whether I would be happy to have a one-year extension of my posting in Vienna because they liked the way I was doing the work. But then they offered this thing in Rangoon, and that happened because the person who was meant to go to Rangoon for other reasons now couldn't go. Hmm. So I went to Rangoon very quickly, within, I think, six weeks. And I'd come to Vienna at very short notice as well because the person that I replaced in Vienna uh, had to leave early for, for other and complicated reasons. So there I was in my second post, brought in early, brought in without warning, and put into Rangoon. And there I was in, in uh, 1972. The government changed in Australia. The white Australia policy was abolished and a whole new framework was built for the relationship we had with Burma and other countries like it in Southeast Asia and the rest of the world. And we had to adapt ourselves to that. That was very fascinating. And there I was again looking at something which was of intrinsic value to people, as opposed to the government thinking about what tax policy should be or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so I, I, there I was in that kind of work. Now, I, I need to say that I'm by no means the only person in foreign services who's had this kind of life. Lots of my friends have had things like this happen at one time or other in their career. 
But uh, so in Rangoon, I was there for just over two years. Then I went back to Canberra and I was there for a couple of years. And then I went to the permanent mission in New York, to the United Nations in New York. And there again, just happenstance. It just so happened that while I was there, Jimmy Carter was elected president of the United States. And he decided that the United States would enter the human rights debate as a progressive, forward-looking country. The United States had not been that kind of country before, and there have been many times since when it hasn't lived up to that role. Mm. And that affected me directly in the job I was doing because I was working on what the United Nations General Assembly calls the Third Committee, which is the the committee that works on human rights and social affairs. And so I was there in the beginning of this reshaping of the way international debate ran, and also at the same time as the entry into force of the International Covenants on Human Rights, the one on civil and political rights and the other on economic, social and cultural rights. So I found myself in a position in the committee, on the floor of the committee, working with other delegates of like mind to try to shape the way the United Nations would handle the arrival of human rights as a big issue for the world. And we did some wonderful work at the time, some of which is still around and still referred to as critical work in the evolution of the international human rights debate. And that meant that for the first time in my career, really, and more so than in Vienna, I found myself working out who the like-minded countries were. If you're looking at the nuclear work in Vienna, the like-minded countries for Australia are fairly easy to pick. But if you're looking at the human rights debate, they're not like that necessarily. And they did include a lot of work with the Scandinavians, the Swedes, the Danes, the Norwegians, but also the New Zealanders, the Canadians, India was a country, Iran at, at an early stage in that country's development, were all central to the way the human rights debate was framed for the world. And I had a bit over three years, three and a half years doing that. It was great. So then I went back to Canberra again, and I was looking likely to go to an embassy in Southeast Asia, but they called me and said, there's been a change of plan. We now need you in Bangkok. So I went to Bangkok. And that was at a time when... (coughs) the dictatorship that Thailand had been under for many years and which I knew a little bit about from my earlier time in Rangoon, that dictatorship fell and it was replaced by a a group of people led by the army, by sympathetic army officers who wanted the country to go in the direction of democracy. So I was there with my experience in human rights from New York, (coughs) looking at how to help people understand what the dimensions of of a new human rights democracy framework might be for the Kingdom of Thailand. That was also very satisfying. Big stuff. I mean, that's very kind of wide-ranging things. It is, but while there, uh, the the position of ambassador in in Rangoon became available, and I was asked whether I would go there as ambassador. So my second posting in in Burma Mm. had me there as ambassador. Mm. And that was also really fascinating, because that was at the time when the uh, the dictatorship formed by General Ne Win collapsed. It was replaced by a, a, a flirtation just a few weeks long with democracy and the establishment of a multi-party system for the country, and then an army takeover. So I saw all yeah. those sorts of things happen. 1986, in yeah? That's in, 80, in 88. Oh, 88. Okay. I, I came there in 86, but in 88 that happened. Right. And many people now find it convenient to say that the arrival of democracy in, in Burma now Myanmar, 
came because of the arrival back in the country of Doang San Suu Kyi, the daughter of the independence hero for the country. <coughs> but it wasn't quite as simple as that. The, the birth of that, of that movement that brought democracy to the country was actually caused by food prices and by a pathetically bad economic management run by the, the Nguyen regime before it. Mm. And uh, so the, the, the real path to democratic moving, uh, dem democratic arrival, started in late 1987, not in March 88, which is what a lot of people now would say. Okay. And I was there. I watched this happen. I knew a lot of people. I knew how to talk to people who I thought might be influential. And as an example of that, and this may be interesting even for this podcast, I decided I would try to work out what was going to happen, in, and this is in 1989 before I left, and what would the situation be for democracy afterwards? And there were the military in hard control, no real prospect of anything going anywhere. So I decided that what I would do is to interview the country's leading astrologers and see what they said. Mm, and this is because the Burmese have a, a deep, and profound belief in astrology as, a, as the guiding symbol for the way the country would go. And I said to myself, if these astrologers, if I get, say, three astrologers together, including people who had provided astrological services to the country's leaders, and they were able to agree on which way the country might go, then I would have a reasonably good chance of being able to predict accurately what would happen. Because even if I didn't believe the astrology, I had to explain this to the people in Canberra, even if you don't believe it, they believe it. It's important that, to understand that they will fulfill what they believe is going to happen. Fascinating lateral that. thinking, Christopher. Yeah, and, and so the, I got these astrologers and I gave them, as one would with astrology, a whole lot of birthdays. The army's birthday, the army commander's birthday, Nguyen's birthday, Aung San Suu Kyi's birthday, all, all these people and, and institutions and said to the astrologers after they'd been collected, and they quite happily came to this discussion, on neutral ground, I should say, and they went away. They sent me away to have a cup of tea, so I go and have a cup of tea, came back, and they explained what was going to happen in their view in terms of the democratic evolution. So I told Canberra that I would be leaving in September 1989, and I gave them the, more or less the timetable for the holding of multi-party elections and what would happen from that. And it was right. Well, no, no, incredible. <laughs> well, good for yes. you. No, no, it's good. I, we, I've, got, I'm just, we've got plenty of time still, but I want to get so much to get in. So I, I've got down here that after that, you went on to be ambassador in Yugoslavia, Romania, and Macedonia between 97 and 2000. Is that, is that yeah. right? Well, after I was in, in Yangon, I went to Washington. Ah. Where, and this comes back to being a people person. The, the department in Canberra decided that they should bring me to Washington. And this goes to the people person question you had at the beginning. Mm. I was given the job of being the, uh, the, I think you would say it most easily, by, by being the Australian lobbyist on Capitol Hill, working from within the embassy. And I thought about this when I got there, and I saw, and I knew a little bit about the United States because I'd been in New York. Uh, I know that the Americans have got a fixation about titles, and Australians don't. So, uh, but I knew that the Americans would say that because I'd been in, in Myanmar as ambassador, 
they would designate me as ambassador. So, but I never put that forward. You just bury the word ambassador somewhere in a CV and they see it. Then they address you as ambassador. And if you are someone that they think is an ambassador, they give you an appointment. Right. So you oh, are okay. one step ahead of the, of the competition in getting appointments with important people. Hmm. But I soon saw, because there are thousands of lobbyists in Washington, that if you are there and you are seen as the lobbyist, you, you will just be, uh, the sort of safeguards that they erect against lobbyists will all come down and block you. So <coughs> I got into the embassy six interns, American students, and uh, I'd learned a little bit about the intern programs. We didn't have such things in Australia at that time. And I said to these interns, I'd like you to look at the background and personality of all the members of the Congress, of the US Congress. So all the members of the House of Representatives and the 100 senators and a couple of other important people that I, I put into this process. I want to find out anything at all that connects these people from their constituencies to Australia, such as sister city relationships, uh, Australian studies at a local university, people who'd been there in Australia during the Vietnam War as on R&R &R from Vietnam, whatever, all sorts of things, whatever you can think of. And I got all these people, all the members of Congress, I understood what they did and what their connection to Australia might be. And if I saw, and, and then I said, now, Put that alongside, that information alongside all the chairs and, and ranking members of the United States Congressional Committees. And to give an example of how that sort of thing could work, one of the things we were trying to do on, on Capitol Hill without any success was to get a special category of business visa for Australians visiting the United States. Uh, one of the members of Congress had been to Australia. He was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He came from a town in Texas called Beaumont. So I look up Beaumont and I see that this guy had been in Australia from the Vietnam War. I contacted his office and said, this congressman has been in Australia and I'm going to go to his electorate to Beaumont. And so while I'm there, it would be great if I could meet him. I'm going to see the mayor while I'm there. Oh, they said, he's very busy. I said, okay, just let him know that I'm going to be there and I get a call back from his office the next day. He says, the congressman would like to invite you to lunch. Hmm. So I go to the House of Representatives, to the state dining room. I have lunch with him. He goes to, he arrives at the lunch wearing an Akubra hat. David, do you know an Akubra? No, I don't. Tell me. They, they're an Australian stockman's hat. Is that the so one with you, the kind of things dangling off it? No, no, no. That's the English impression. It's the it's, it's a, a hot, the hat that would be worn by the stockman as he rides his horse and rounds up his cattle okay. and does those. Okay. So he arrives at the House of Representatives dining room wearing his Akubra hat, and is so thrilled to see me. And I said, "Well, I'm going down to Beaumont." He said, "I hadn't been planning to go. When are you going to go?" And I said, but "I gave him the date." He said, "Oh," and he made a phone call to his secretary or someone and said, can you make it three days later and I'll come down and we'll do it together. So I go to Beaumont. We meet up there and he said, this is fantastic. I love this. You're wearing a hat too and we're really getting along well. What can I do for you? And I told him I had this piece of legislation that I'd like to see happen. He said, consider it done. Ooh. 
Now, if I'd done that through the normal lobbying channels in Washington, I would have got nowhere. Nothing would have happened. But it did, and he did it. And I stayed in touch with him, and I, I sent him Christmas cards to Beaumont and all those things. And his and the staff, his staff, and then later other congressmen, because I did things in a lot of different electorates. I think I went to 55 or 60 electorate offices of these congressmen when I needed something to happen. And it always worked, always. And so it's about people. And that gave me another impression that I took into the work I do on humanitarian diplomacy now in this course I teach. You've got to understand who the stakeholders are. You can't get anywhere in diplomacy unless you appreciate the stakeholders and their value. And for most people in politics, the, the stakeholders might look as if they're a big corporation or something like that, but actually the stakeholder is the district, the people in the constituency and how they're going to go. And if you know the mayors, you know the Chamber of Commerce, you know the representatives of the group that interests you and the, and the congressman, you work that out too, that's where you drive your political interests. You're making such a good case for, 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 for research in one respect. I mean, and also, you know, I said about the lateral thinking, if you like, well, partly with the astrologers in Thailand, but also now talking about the deep dives into Australian threads, if you like, in America, uh, yeah. and how that could influence and help and actually, in a sense, endear people to you, but certainly, you know, kind of boost your credibility and therefore well, be able to get your argument better listened to. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is. And, and there are some things that happen along the way. So the, the interns did this study of the sister cities and we found at that time there were 78 sister city relationships between Australia and the US. And I had them all on the map up there, coloured in different ways to represent what the congressman does or might do or could help. And I then worked out what the priorities were with these things and, and contacted the body. It, it, at that time, its headquarters was in Phoenix, Arizona, Sister Cities International. And I said, I've got to go to Arizona because I've got to see a congressman down there, but I'm doing this work on Sister Cities. And I'd like to come to you and congratulate you on the great work you do with Sister Cities. So I go there. And I knew this was going to happen. This is the way the Americans do it. They looked up my CV. They saw I'd been an ambassador. I get there. The red carpet's rolled out. I go and see the boss. You don't just go and see a functionary. <coughs> the boss then invites me to go to their next big uh, sister cities conference, which was going to be in Chicago the following year. I went to Chicago. They put me on stage to talk about the value of sister cities between the two countries and how helpful they are to the political lobbying that we do and how you don't have to do the work in, in Washington all the time. You do a lot of the most valuable work in the cities because that's where the congressman's base is. That's the essential message for Sister Cities International. But because they gave me that platform, it was their platform, and I said their thing at, through their microphones, the congressmen all listened to this, and the congressmen then send me invitations. When can we meet? When can you come to my district? When can, you, when can the mayor be there? And one of the people that, that came out of that with whom I did things, and I won't go into what the things were, but it was the chairman of the House of Representatives Foreign Relations Committee, whose constituency was in a place called Jefferson, Indiana. These are places that are, are right off the map for just about everybody. So I went to Jefferson. The congressman was there. We had lunch overlooking the river in, Je in Jefferson. What can I do for you? I said, well, 
I'd like to improve the relationship between Australia and the United States in whatever direction it can be, and I'd like to do that improvement by, by doing improvement before there's a problem. We need to be proactive. We need to make sure there are no problems. And from what I see from my job, most people in the United States, including in Washington, think of Southeast Asia or Oceania as a distant, forgettable part of the world. I'd like to change that. And okay. he liked that, and I won't tell you what we did, but it was remarkable, just remarkable. And it, and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't known about Jefferson City, Indiana. Well, as you heard there, we get so much to talk about with Christopher that we're going to make this a two-parter. I'm really excited about this. That entire, the landscape of diplomacy that he described there, the, the talk of how he puts people first always, and I know him as a humanitarian, is just so exciting. And for me, with a background in social work, the idea that it parallels what we do on another scale, but all the same, in, in the resolution of conflict. Because everything we do is to resolve conflict. And of course, in social work, you hope and plan to do it diplomatically, but always putting people first. Now, uh, I'm going to move on to part two. But for this part, remember and say thanks again to all the digital media for the technical support of this uh, podcast. And also the voice recorder that you see at the side of the uh, page, just click it once and leave me a message. It'll come to my email and I will look forward to including it as a shout out in the podcast or if you say so, just taking on board the ideas that you leave. So for now, thanks for listening and uh, I look forward to part two being published in the very near future in which Chris from 2000 onwards, talks about his huge influence he's had on the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, his time that I met him and worked with him, and his thoughts for the future. So, see you very soon. Thank you.